So it looks like the way I'm going, I've got about a third of the way through the book in the first part. And it looks like it's going to be a three-parter, so I'm going to crack on without further ado. So we're on to chapter six of Emotional Intelligence. This is called The Master Aptitude. And this is a section called Impulse Control, The Marshmallow Test. Just imagine you're four years old and someone makes the following proposal. If you'll wait until after he runs an errand, you can have two marshmallows for a treat. If you can't wait until then, you can only have one, but you can have it right now. It is a challenge sure to try the soul of any four-year-old. A microcosm of the eternal battle between impulse and restraint, id and ego, desire and self-control, gratification and delay. Which of these choices a child makes is a telling test. It offers a quick reading not just of character, but of the trajectory that child will probably take through life. There is perhaps no psychological skill more fundamental than resisting impulse. It is the root of all emotional self-control, since all emotions, by their very nature, lead to one or another impulse to act. The root meaning of the word emotion is to move. The capacity to resist that impulse to act, to squelch the incipient movement, most likely translates at the level of brain function into inhibition of limbic signals to the motor cortex, though such an interpretation must remain speculative for now. At any rate, a remarkable study in which the marshmallow challenge was posed to four-year-olds shows just how fundamental is the ability to restrain the emotions and so delay impulse. Begun by psychologist Walter Mischel during the 1960s and involving mainly children of Stanford faculty, graduate students and other employees, the study tracked down the four-year-olds as they were graduating from high school. Some four-year-olds were able to wait what must surely have seemed an endless 15 to 20 minutes for the experimenter to return. To sustain themselves in their struggle, they covered their eyes so they wouldn't have to stare at temptation, or rested their heads in their arms, talked to themselves, sang, played games with their hands and feet, even tried to go to sleep. These plucky preschoolers got the two marshmallow reward, but others, more impulsive, grabbed the one marshmallow, almost always within seconds of the experimenters leaving the room on his errand. The diagnostic power of how this moment of impulse was handled became clear some 12 to 14 years later, when these same children were tracked down as adolescents. The emotional and social difference between the the grab-the-marshmallow preschoolers and their gratification-delaying peers was dramatic. Those who had resisted temptation at four were now, as adolescents, more socially competent, personally effective, self-assertive and better able to cope with the frustrations of life. They were less likely to go to pieces, freeze or regress under stress or become rattled and disorganised when pressured. They embraced challenges and pursued them instead of giving up, even in the face of difficulties. They were self-reliant and confident, trustworthy and dependable, and they took initiative and plunged into projects. And more than a decade later, they were still able to delay gratification in pursuit of their goals. The third or so who grabbed for the marshmallow, however, tended to have fewer of these qualities and shared instead a relatively more troubled psychological portrait. In adolescence, they were more likely to be seen as shying away from social contacts, to be stubborn and indecisive, to be easily upset by frustrations, to think of themselves as bad or unworthy, to regress or become immobilised by stress, to be mistrustful and resentful about not getting enough, to be prone to jealousy and envy, to overreact to irritations with a sharp temper, so provoking arguments and fights. And after all these years, they still were unable to put off gratification. There's more on that, but you get the picture. And they make the point that um, this test was more effective as a gauge of how these children would work out than the SAT tests. I think they're the standard tests you do at school. So really just a couple of things. I mean, 
impulse control is a problem that uh, adults have. And nowadays, of course, it's getting more and more difficult because there's more and more temptation, distraction. And uh, it's a tricky one. But uh, just to briefly mention my nephew, Philip, again, I think of all my nephews and nieces, which total five, he's the one, I think, that would have passed the marshmallow test had he taken it. He had amazing poise, even at a very young age. And um, I was saying earlier, he, he had a tendency almost to ask the adults if they were all right. Had this strange thing where he wanted to take care of us, even though he was, whatever he was, seven or something like that. Very interesting. So later on, we get into the subject of flow, which is a, a wonderful topic. And I'll tell you what, anyone who can pronounce the surname of Mihaly, the man who wrote the famous book on flow, has got my respect. Unless you come from that part of the world, I think it's Eastern Europe. Yes, anyway, I'm not going to even attempt that. But there is a famous book called Flow, which I would recommend. So a little bit on that. Flow is a state of self-forgetfulness, the opposite of rumination and worry. Instead of being lost in nervous preoccupation, people in flow are so absorbed in the task at hand that they lose all self-consciousness, dropping the small preoccupations, health, bills, even doing well, of daily life. In this sense, moments of flow are egoless. Paradoxically, people in flow exhibit a masterly control of what they are doing. Their response is perfectly attuned to the changing demands of the task. And although people perform at their peak while in flow, they are unconcerned with how they are doing, with thoughts of success or failure. The sheer pleasure of the act itself is what motivates them. There are several ways to enter flow. One is to intentionally focus a sharp attention on the task at hand. A highly concentrated state is the essence of flow. There seems to be a feedback loop at the gateway to this zone. It can require considerable effort to get calm and focused enough to begin the task. This first step takes some discipline. But once focus starts to lock in, it takes on a force of its own, both offering relief from emotional turbulence and making the task effortless. And I was actually describing that to one of my students um, this morning. We were discussing uh, an animated summary of the book Mastery by Robert Greene. And we were talking about how with flow, often if you do the hard work at the beginning, then the payoff, the reward, is the state of flow. But if you want some idea of what this is like, perhaps imagine um, running a long distance race, you know, maybe a marathon. You probably take a few miles or kilometres for your muscles to relax. And at a certain point, you would just find that it becomes effortless. It's getting out of your head, really, getting out of the mind state. The mind does discussed in this book and other books is often you know that the rational mind we were talking about earlier is a kind of a filter or a barrier to you know kind of letting it all hang out and uh, <laughs> flow is a wonderful thing really i think effortless is really the word flow is a state devoid of emotional static save for a compelling highly motivating feeling of mild ecstasy that ecstasy seems to be a byproduct of the attentional focus that is a prerequisite of flow Indeed, the classic literature of contemplative traditions describes states of absorption that are experienced as pure bliss, flow induced by nothing more than intense concentration. Watching someone in flow gives the impression that the difficult is easy. Peak performance appears natural and ordinary. This impression parallels what is going on within the brain, where a similar paradox is repeated. The most challenging tasks are done with a minimum expenditure of mental energy. In flow, the brain is in a cool state, its arousal and inhibition of neural circuitry attuned to the demand of the moment. When people are engaged in activities that effortlessly capture and hold their attention, their brain quiets down, 
in the sense that there is a lessening of cortical arousal. That discovery is remarkable given that flow allows people to tackle the most challenging tasks in a given domain, whether playing against a chess master or solving a complex mathematical problem. The expectation would be that such challenging tasks would require more cortical activity, not less. But a key to flow is that it occurs only within reach of the summit of ability, where skills are well rehearsed and neural circuits are most efficient. So cortical refers to the cortex, which is part of the brain. And one part I didn't read, but just quickly um, to summarise it, flow generally won't happen if you're a beginner. You know, if you're lucky or if you're particularly exceptional at something, it might. But it tends to be that, uh, as I said, with mastery, you you learn the basics. So if you are learning a new skill, be it learning a musical instrument or a language or something such as running, where it's not necessarily a skill to actually run, you know, it's... uh, as George Carlin famously said when making fun of the fact that there was a walking magazine, hey, honey, here's a good article about putting one foot in front of another. And Bill Hicks also used to make fun about jogging. You jog around a track and then you have a shower when you get home. That's the jogging experience. <laughs> Why do we need to write books about it? Anyway, so, yeah. In fact, really, running is a good example where the mechanics of it are obviously very simple. But uh, it takes in quite a few things to do with emotional intelligence you know impulse control for one you know it's very tempting to stop because running I used to run fairly long distances but my body is much more designed I mean I was a 400 meter runner at school it's much more designed for that but uh, I used to find that in fact you get bored before you get physically tired when you run and I used to kind of cheat there was a guy I used to go running with and we both loved films and we would spend six miles you know 10k talking about films and we'd get to the end of our run not even hardly noticing that we've been running because basically we're in the flow of a conversation which translated into a the flow state while running and we'd feel like we cheated like we hadn't worked hard so i think with running uh if you do run on your own you have to get through the barrier of uh getting used to the boredom of it as well as the physical tiredness so anyway that's flow so something to aim at whatever you're doing do the hard work and then you get the payoff and the book talks about flow in the context of education the strategies used in many of the schools that are putting Gardner's model that's Howard Gardner of multiple intelligences into practice revolves around identifying a child's profile of natural competencies and playing to the strengths as well as trying to shore up the weaknesses a child who is naturally talented in musical movement for example will enter flow more easily in that domain than in those where they are less able Knowing a child's profile can help a teacher fine-tune the way the topic is presented to a child and offer lessons at the level, from remedial to highly advanced, that is most likely to provide an optimal challenge. Doing this makes learning more pleasurable, neither fearsome nor a bore. The hope is that when kids gain flow from learning, they will be emboldened to take on challenges in new areas, says Gardner, adding that experience suggests this is the case. And then they talk about mastery, which uh, links back to Robert Greene, I was just talking about. And that paragraph links back to Ken Robinson and uh, the idea that education doesn't have to be some kind of grind, some mind-numbing activity. You can make learning fun. Now, of course, that's a lot easier in small classes. It's kind of like when you talk about political systems. It's much easier to achieve great things in Finland or Denmark than in the USA. But, you know, it's worth trying these things and I salute the fact that in many of these things that Goldman talks about in this book 
there are educational establishments trying to put them into practice because uh, it's all about the kids at the end of the day. I think that's one of the conclusions of the book, in fact. That's the future. Chapter 7 is The Roots of Empathy. And this section is called How Empathy Unfolds. The moment Hope, just nine months old, saw another baby fall, tears welled up in her own eyes and she crawled off to be comforted by her mother, as though it were her who had been hurt. And 15-month-old Michael went to get his own teddy bear for his crying friend Paul. When Paul kept crying, Michael retrieved Paul's security blanket for him. Both these small acts of sympathy and caring were observed by mothers trained to record such incidents of empathy in action. The results of the study suggest that the roots of empathy can be traced to infancy. Virtually from the day they are born, infants are upset when they hear another infant crying, a response some see as the earliest precursor of empathy. They then talk about a thing called motor mimicry, which is basically when kids copy what another kid does, in this case crying. Quite touching displays of empathy. You generally don't really think of children as having empathy really because to a certain point children are very much commanded by their id and the id is the childlike impulse you know that doesn't let thought or restraint come into the picture again involving uh, philip but in, in this case he was the recipient of the eq let's call it philip got upset about something and there was another boy who went upstairs and he was rubbing his back and saying, oh, don't worry, it's fine, you know. It was very, very touching. And uh, that's really inspiring when you see that displayed by the the children. So coming on to attunement, so the well-attuned child. Sarah was 25 when she gave birth to twin boys, Mark and Fred. Mark, she felt, was more like herself. Fred was more like his father. That perception may have been the seed of a telling but subtle difference in how she treated each boy. When the boys were just three months old, Sarah would often try to catch Fred's gaze, and when he would avert his face, she would try to catch his eye again. Fred would respond by turning away more emphatically. Once she would look away, Fred would look back at her, and the cycle of pursuit and aversion would begin again, often leaving Fred in tears. But with Mark, Sarah virtually never tried to impose eye contact as she did with Fred. Instead, Mark could break off eye contact whenever he wanted, and she would not pursue. A small act, but telling. A year later, Fred was noticeably more fearful and dependent than Mark. One way he showed his fearfulness was by breaking off eye contact with other people, as he had done with his mother at three months, turning his face down and away. Mark, on the other hand, looked people straight in the eye. When he wanted to break off contact, he turned his head slightly upward and to the side, with a winning smile. This observation was done by Daniel Stern, a psychiatrist who was then at Cornell University School of Medicine. Attunement occurs tacitly as part of the rhythm of a relationship. Stern has studied it with microscopic precision through videotaping hours of mothers with their infants. He finds that through attunement, mothers let their infants know they have a sense of what the infant is feeling. A baby squeals with delight, for example, and the mother affirms that delight by giving the baby a gentle shake, cooing, or matching the pitch of her voice to the baby's squeal. Or a baby shakes his rattle and she gives him a quick shimmy in response. In such an interaction, the affirming message is in the mother, more or less matching the baby's level of excitement. Such small attunements give an infant the reassuring feeling of being emotionally connected, a message that Stern finds mothers send about once a minute when they interact with their babies. Attunement is very different from simple imitation. If you just imitate a baby, that only shows that you know what he did, not how he felt. 
To let him know you sense how he feels, you have to play back his inner feelings in another way. Then the baby knows he is understood. Making love is perhaps the closest approximation in adult life to this intimate attunement between infant and mother. Lovemaking, Stern writes, involves the experience of sensing the other's subjective state, shared desire, aligned intentions and mutual states of simultaneously shifting arousal, with lovers responding to each other in a synchrony that gives the tacit sense of deep rapport. And now the darker side of it, the costs of misattunement. Stern holds that from repeated attunements, an infant begins to develop a sense that other people can and will share in their feelings. This sense seems to emerge at around eight months, when infants begin to realise they are separate from others, and continues to be shaped by intimate relationships throughout life. When parents are misattuned to a child, it is deeply upsetting. In one experiment, Stern had mothers deliberately over- or under-respond to their infants, rather than matching them in an attuned way. The infants responded with immediate dismay and distress. Prolonged absence of attunement between parent and child takes a tremendous emotional toll on the child. When a parent consistently fails to show any empathy with a particular range of emotion in the child, joys, tears, needing to cuddle, the child begins to avoid expressing and perhaps even feeling those same emotions. In this way, presumably, entire ranges of emotion can begin to be obliterated from the repertoire for intimate relations, especially if throughout childhood those feelings continue to be covertly or overtly discouraged. By the same token, children can come to favour an unfortunate range of emotion depending on which moods are reciprocated. Even infants catch moods. Three-months-old babies of depressed mothers, for example, mirrored their mother's moods while playing with them, displaying more feelings of anger and sadness and much less spontaneous curiosity and interest compared to infants whose mothers were not depressed. One mother in Stern's study consistently underreacted to her baby's level of activity. Eventually her baby learned to be passive. An infant treated that way learns, when I get excited I can't get my mother to be equally excited, so I may as well not try at all. But there is hope in reparative relationships. Relationships throughout life, with friends or relatives for example, or in psychotherapy, continually reshape your working model of relationships. An imbalance at one point can be corrected later. It's an ongoing, lifelong process. So, I mean, how heartbreaking is that to read, you know, that an infant or a young child can basically give up on emotions because he senses that his mother, or in many cases perhaps both his parents, just are not responding. I'd say the level of ignorance in our society about parenting, you know, I said I, I haven't got children myself, so I really do make a point of not judging. But, you know, I observe this. I, when I was in London, I was sharing a flat in a quite deprived area. And you saw this a lot, you know, young mothers who were highly stressed, sometimes had multiple children, and they were just getting angry. And um, one of the things I can remember, seeing a mother getting right in her baby's face with this terribly angry expression and an angry tone of voice. And I tell you what, those kids are going to pick up on that. And one of the things in this book, one of the strengths of it is that it really, if you read it carefully, it really does increase your own empathy because you realise this is how, you know, criminals, psychopaths, there's a chapter about it later that I'm going to read from, this is where they come from. So the idea we have, which again, you know, to compare small Scandinavian countries with America is not really fair, but in these small Scandinavian countries, you can give them more care and you can really make a, an effort to rehabilitate. Whereas the prison system, which we now know, you know, the prison industrial complex, a lot of prisons are run for profit. 
there's no incentive in fact to rehabilitate so uh, it's pretty heartbreaking to see this but it's uh, definitely worth understanding where this comes from and how early it starts but uh you know i'm always trying to read the optimistic parts as well and that another part of the book says temperament is not destiny these things up to a point can be reversed i think to be honest when there's a certain amount of trauma there may be a, a point of no return but i don't really want to say that because i'm not a specialist you know somebody like um gabor mate if you've ever heard of him i don't really do heroes particularly but if i had a hero it'd be him probably and i'm going to try and get him on the podcast i really would like to speak to him but you should look up any of his stuff gabor g-a-b-o-r mate m-a-t-e he's of hungarian descent but i think he's american citizen now amazing guy anyway so following on from what i was talking about about how the early damage can um, lead to criminal behavior so here we're looking at life without empathy the mind of the molester the morals of the sociopath it gives the famous example of tonya harding and nancy kerrigan this was during the 1994 winter olympics tonya harding's bodyguard had arranged to have thugs attack kerrigan in the attack kerrigan's knee was battered sidelining her during crucial training months but when Eckhart saw the image of a sobbing Kerrigan on television, he had a sudden rush of remorse and sought out a friend to bear his secret, beginning the sequence that led to the arrest of the attackers. Such is the power of empathy. So that's a case where someone did a pretty dastardly act and then was overcome by empathy, but is typically and tragically lacking in those who commit the most mean-spirited of crimes. A psychological fault line is common to rapists, child molesters and many perpetrators of family violence alike. They are incapable of empathy. This inability to feel their victim's pain allows them to tell themselves lies that encourage their crime. For rapists, the lies include women really want to be raped or if she resists, she's just playing hard to get. For molesters, I'm not hurting the child, just showing love or this is just another form of affection. For physically abusive parents, this is just good discipline. These self-justifications are all collected from what people being treated for these problems say they have told themselves as they were brutalising their victims or preparing to do so. This blotting out of empathy as these people inflict damage on victims is almost always part of an emotional cycle that precipitates their cruel acts. Witness the emotional sequence that typically leads to a sex crime such as child molestation. The cycle begins with the molester feeling upset, angry, depressed, lonely. These sentiments might be triggered by, say, watching happy couples on TV and then feeling depressed about being alone. The molester then seeks solace in a favoured fantasy, typically about a warm friendship with a child. The fantasy becomes sexual and ends in masturbation. Afterward, the molester feels a temporary relief from the sadness. But that relief is short-lived. The depression and loneliness return even more strongly. The molester begins to think about acting out the fantasy, telling himself justifications like, I'm not doing any real harm if the child is not physically hurt, and if a child really didn't want to have sex with me, she could stop it. Using she there, but of course it could be a boy or a girl. At this point, the molester is seeing the child through the lens of the perverted fantasy, not with empathy for what a real child would feel in the situation. That emotional detachment characterises everything that follows, from the ensuing plan to get a child alone to the careful rehearsal of what will happen, and then the execution of the plan. All of it is pursued as though the child involved had no feelings of their own. Instead, the molester projects on the child the cooperative attitude of the child in his fantasy. Their feelings, revulsion, fear, disgust, do not register. If they did, it would ruin things for the molester. 
So really, uh, this lack of empathy, it just means that you can play out your fantasies and any barriers to that, for example, um, the victim, be it a child or an adult, not wanting to do it, are seen as inconveniences to the person without empathy. It's um, absolutely terrible, and that's why empathy is really a vital thing. But as is shown in this book, often uh, there's a change in the brain. The brain circuitry is different. So it's arguable whether the person is totally aware of what they are doing. I mean, there is a a theory, I've never been totally clear the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath, but, but it seems that a sociopath knows what they're doing and perhaps has such a an antisocial attitude or hatred of people perhaps that he can he or she can willingly disregard the feelings but perhaps it's a bit more conscious whereas a psychopath may have you know the empathy missing or like i said different brain circuitry i'm not totally clear on that and i have heard people talking about it and i don't think it's ever been perfectly explained if you listen to any of the kissinger nixon tapes that were released i mean i listened to a bit of it but it, it's harrowing the way they're talking so matter-of-factly about bombing parts of Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and talking, you know, they don't mention collateral damage, but that's the feeling they have of it. Collateral damage is an example, of course, of a, a very pleasant euphemism to explain away something utterly dreadful. Actually, just backtracking a few pages, I want to talk about uh, a connection with the brain here. So this is some experiments on monkeys Having established that non-human primates do indeed read emotions from the faces of their peers, researchers gently inserted long, fine-tipped electrodes into the brains of monkeys. These electrodes allowed the recording of activity in a single neuron. Electrodes tapping neurons in the visual cortex and in the amygdala showed that when one monkey saw the face of another, that information led to a neuron firing first in the visual cortex, then in the amygdala. This pathway, of course, is a standard route for information that is emotionally arousing. But what is surprising about results from such studies is that they have also identified neurons in the visual cortex that seem to fire only in response to specific facial expressions or gestures, such as a threatening opening of the mouth, a fearful grimace, or a docile crouch. This is all rather grisly, isn't it, by the way, about using monkeys for these kind of experiments. They talk about research in which monkeys in the wild had the connections to and from the amygdala and cortex severed. When they were released back to their troops, these monkeys were able to contend with ordinary tasks such as feeding themselves and climbing trees, but the unfortunate monkeys had lost all sense of how to respond emotionally to other monkeys in their band. Even when one made a friendly approach, they would run away and eventually lived as isolates, shunning contact with their own troop. So that's um, a neurological explanation, if you like. And um, again, going back to psychopaths, you know, they they are able to do the normal things in life and uh, they can often very seamlessly fit into life, but they're lacking this empathy. And that often means, you know, I kind of share this idea that the world may be run by these kind of people because, you know, they can start wars and run corporations where um, the environment is being devastated and people are losing their lives and it's just all business. It's good business. Chapter 8 is called The Social Arts. And this is where we're talking about social intelligence, which, uh, as I said earlier, I would link with, or I would call it part of emotional intelligence, but I may well get to Goldman's book on social intelligence in the future. So two of the researchers, Hatch and uh, the aforementioned Gardner, identified 
social intelligence with interpersonal intelligence, which I talked about quite a bit in part one, four particular components are organising groups, the essential skill of the leader, this involves initiating and coordinating the efforts of a network of people. This is a talent seen in theatre directors or producers, in military officers and in effective heads of organisations and units of all kinds. On the playground, this is the child who takes the lead in deciding what everyone will play or becomes team captain. Then there's negotiating solutions. The talent of the mediator, preventing conflicts or resolving those that flare up. People who have this ability excel in deal-making, in arbitrating or mediating disputes. They might have a career in diplomacy, in arbitration or law, or as middlemen or managers of takeovers. These are the kids who settle arguments on the playing field. So if you take the diplomacy plus some psychopathy, I think you've got Henry Kissinger there. Anyway, watch the film by the late and brilliant Christopher Hitchens called uh, The Trials of Henry Kissinger. Third one is personal connection, which is the talent of empathy and connecting. This makes it easy to enter into an encounter or to recognise and respond fittingly to people's feelings and concerns, the art of relationship. Such people make good team players, dependable spouses, good friends or business partners. In the business world, they do well as salespeople or managers and can be excellent teachers. Children with this ability get along well with virtually everyone else, easily enter into playing with them and are happy doing so. These children tend to be best at reading emotions from facial expressions and are most liked by their classmates. And the last one is social analysis, being able to detect and have insights about people's feelings, motives and concerns. This knowledge of how others feel can lead to an easy intimacy or sense of rapport. At its best, this ability makes one a competent therapist or counsellor, or if combined with some literary talent, a gifted novelist or dramatist. Interesting there, what flashed into my mind as I was reading. Again, in one of the business English books that I've used in my English classes, they talk about what makes a perfect team. And you've kind of got some idea of it there. You've got uh, the leader, the mediator, and you've got the person with great empathy i suppose that would be allied with the mediator but uh someone who could i don't know perhaps advise the mediator because they have a, a strong sense of picking up signals body language that kind of thing but it, you know it all goes together really as i said into uh emotional intelligence taken together these skills are the stuff of interpersonal polish the necessary ingredients for charm social success even charisma Those who are adept in social intelligence can connect with people quite smoothly, be astute in reading their reactions and feelings, lead and organise, and handle the disputes that are bound to flare up in any human activity. They are the natural leaders, the people who can express the unspoken collective sentiment and articulate it so as to guide a group towards its goals. So thinking about a leader, you might have someone who is naturally dominant, but then if that person is lacking in EQ, perhaps they might be too bossy. So there's a balance here. You need a mixture of all those things that we just talked about. So, you know, be a leader, but then gauge when uh, the group, the tribe, in my case, you know, now I teach online, but it used to be classrooms. I developed quite a good sense over a number of years of the mood of the class. And I would always look out for somebody who maybe hadn't spoken for a while or looked a bit dissatisfied. And I would maybe put some attention on that person. So uh, dynamics is a fantastically interesting thing now they talk about uh, social chameleons it talks about people who blend in they appear to satisfy everyone because they have a good skill of mirroring people which appears to give rapport but there's often not too much 
substance to do with it. And they say that they make an excellent impression, yet have few stable or satisfying intimate relationships. A more healthy pattern, of course, is to balance being true to oneself with social skills, using them with integrity. And this is kind of what I was saying in part one, you know, be true to yourself, be natural, etc. But you also have to gauge what's going on because you don't live in a in a vacuum and you don't live in a world that only contains yourself. You know, you have to know how to deal with people. So it says social chameleons don't mind in the least saying one thing and doing another if that will win them social approval. They simply live with a discrepancy between their public face and their private reality. Helena Deutsch, a psychoanalyst, called such people the as-if personality, shifting personas with remarkable plasticity as they pick up signals from those around them. For some people, the public and private person meshes well, while for others there seems to be only a kaleidoscope of changing appearances. And uh, if you've ever seen the film Zelig, an absolute masterpiece by Woody Allen, and in fact they mention Zelig here, what Woody Allen did, which was so, so brilliant, was actually take that idea and the Zelig character who was played by him in the film actually physically changed. So if he was around Native Americans, he would actually start to look like a Native American. That's a, a fantastic sort of extension or exaggeration of a very real phenomenon. There's a part of the book where they talk about social incompetence. The two cardinal sins for children, and I'd argue for adults, are trying to take the lead too soon in a group and being out of sync with the frame of reference. Popular children spend time observing the group to gauge the dynamics and do something to show that they accept it. And I have some experience of this. I got involved in a group of musicians, and I think my ego, my child who hadn't had enough attention, (laughs) my need for attention led me to just bluster into this group like the proverbial bull in a china shop and try too hard to create an impression. And I ended up alienating the group and having to win them back over a period of time. So the advice here really is to... um, If you want to enter into a group or a community or a tribe, the smart thing really, I think, is to just spend a bit of time on the periphery, on the outside, observing. And if you're a person who's quite good at gauging dynamics and gauging groups, then you'll know the time to to strike, so to speak. You know, most people are friendly, at least at the beginning, and um, people who are socially successful, they will as the book says, show signs of approval. I gradually get the approval of a couple of people in the group. Obviously, one of the shortcuts is to get the approval of the alpha male, so to speak. But you have to, in my experience, you have to be careful not to lay it on too thick. Part three of the book is Emotional Intelligence Applied. And we're on to chapter nine, Intimate Enemies. This section is about marriage. It's called His Marriage and Hers, Childhood Roots. As I was entering a restaurant on a recent evening, a young man stalked out the door, his face set in an expression both stony and sullen. Close on his heels, a young woman came running, her fists desperately pummeling his back while she yelled, God damn you, come back here and be nice to me. That poignant, impossibly self-contradictory plea aimed at a retreating back epitomises the pattern most commonly seen in couples whose relationship is distressed. She seeks to engage, he withdraws. Marital therapists have long noted that by the time a couple finds their way to the therapy office, they are in this pattern of engage, withdraw, with his complaint about her unreasonable demands and outbursts, and her lamenting his indifference to what she is saying. 
This marital endgame reflects the fact that there are in effect two emotional realities in a couple, his and hers. The roots of these emotional differences, while they may be partly biological, also can be traced back to childhood and to the separate emotional worlds boys and girls inhabit while growing up. There is a vast amount of research on these separate worlds, their barriers reinforced not just by the different games boys and girls prefer, but by young children's fear of being teased for having a girlfriend or boyfriend. One study of children's friendships found that three-year-olds say about half their friends are of the opposite sex. For five-year-olds it's about 20%, and by age seven almost no boys or girls say they have a best friend of the opposite sex. These separate social universes intersect little until teenagers start dating. So yeah, familiar pattern. When you're a very young child, you don't really care much about whether your playmates are male or female, so you get an even spread. And then at some point in your life, I think they said age seven here, can vary, of course, you start to get the boys and the girls. When you get to dating age, you tend to start to associate with the opposite sex, even the ones that you're not dating. Leslie Brody and Judith Hall, who have summarised the research on differences in emotions between the sexes, propose that because girls develop facility with language more quickly than do boys, this leads them to be more experienced at articulating their feelings and more skilled than boys at using words to explore and substitute for emotional reactions such as physical fights. In contrast, they note, boys for whom the verbalisation of effects is de-emphasised may become largely unconscious of their emotional states, both in themselves and in others. At age 10, roughly the same percent of girls and boys are overtly aggressive, given to open confrontation when angered. But by age 13, a telling difference between the sexes emerges. Girls become more adept than boys at artful aggressive tactics like ostracism, vicious gossip and indirect vendettas. Boys by and large simply continue being confrontational when angered, oblivious to these more covert strategies. This is just one of many ways that boys and later men are less sophisticated than the opposite sex in the byways of emotional life. And they go on to cite more evidence of this. So yes, it could be that boys are more overtly aggressive and girls are more passive-aggressive. I think one of the problems we're having at the present moment is that with Me Too and with the woke culture, I sometimes get the sense that we're denying gender differences. And so if, for example, men say that women are more sneaky, passive-aggressive, that can often provoke a reaction. But this is Leslie Brody and Judith Hall. I think Leslie, that could be a man or a woman. Judith Hall is obviously a woman. You know, there is a, a lot of research to do with gender differences. And yes, you know, the nature-nurture debate will probably go on for as long as humans are on the earth. You know, it's never going to be settled. But uh, personally, I think we need to realise that there are gender differences and that when you point that out, it's not necessarily stereotyping. Now, going back to marriage, there's a very interesting part. I mentioned the word flooding, in fact, in part one, and that's about this. It's called flooding, the swamping of a marriage. And uh, in the previous pages, they had talked about how, as we saw earlier with the, the unhappy couple, they're constantly triggering each other. You know, there's another common expression now, triggering. But it's a word that's always been around, I think. The net effect of these distressing attitudes is to create incessant crisis since they trigger emotional hijackings more often and make it harder to recover from the resulting hurt and rage. Now, the researcher Gottman uses the apt term flooding for this susceptibility to frequent emotional distress. Flooded husbands or wives are so overwhelmed by their partner's negativity and their own reaction to it that they are swamped by dreadful, out-of-control feelings. 
People who are flooded cannot hear without distortion or respond with clear-headedness. They find it hard to organise their thinking and they fall back on primitive reactions. They just want things to stop or want to run or sometimes to strike back. Flooding is a self-perpetuating emotional hijacking. Some people have high thresholds for flooding, easily enduring anger and contempt, while others may be triggered the moment their spouse makes a mild criticism. A technical description of flooding is in terms of heart rate rise from calm levels. At rest, women's heart rates are about 82 beats per minute, men's about 72. Flooding begins at about 10 beats per minute above a person's resting rate. If the heart rate reaches 100 beats per minute, as it easily can do during moments of rage or tears, then the body is pumping adrenaline and other hormones that keep the distress high for some time. The moment of emotional hijacking is apparent from the heart rate. It can jump 10, 20 or even as many as 30 beats per minute within the space of a single heartbeat. Muscles tense and it can seem hard to breathe. There is a swamp of toxic feelings, an unpleasant wash of fear and anger that seems inescapable and subjectively takes forever to get out. At this point, full hijacking, a person's emotions are so intense, their perspective so narrow and their thinking so confused that there is no hope of taking the other's viewpoint or settling things in a reasonable way. So I think we've referred back to the emotional mind and the rational mind and this is really where the emotions take over. Another thing that was mentioned earlier was the pleasantness of these emotions. You know, anger gives a rush of chemicals which increases your energy. And I think that's one of the reasons why when people see the proverbial red mist, they just keep going because it's a release. The same way that sex is a release of emotions, so is anger. So it can be very pleasurable in the moment, but of course you regret it later on and the ramifications can be disastrous. Then they carry on to say, This is perhaps the most dangerous turning point for marriage, a catastrophic shift in the relationship. The flooded partner has come to think the worst of the spouse virtually all the time, reading everything he or she does in a negative light. Small issues become major battles. Feelings are hurt continuously. With time, the partner who is being flooded starts to see any and all problems in the marriage as severe and impossible to fix, since the flooding itself sabotages any attempt to work things out. Then we get to a section which is to do with marital advice. Men and women in general need different emotional fine-tuning. For men, the advice is not to sidestep conflict, but to realise that when their wife brings up some grievance or disagreement, she may be doing it as an act of love, trying to keep the relationship healthy and on course. When grievances simmer, they build and build in intensity until there's an explosion. When they are aired and worked out, it takes the pressure off. But husbands need to realise that anger or discontent is not synonymous with personal attack. Their wives' emotions are often simply underliners, emphasising the strength of her feelings about the matter. Men also need to be on guard about short-circuiting the discussion by offering a practical solution too early on. It's typically more important to a wife that she feel her husband hears her complaint and emphasising with her feelings about the matter, even though he may not agree with her. So yes, you know, call them stereotypes. Men are practical, women are emotional. But again, there's plenty of research to back that up. As for women, the advice is quite parallel. Since a major problem for men is that their wives are too intense in voicing complaints, wives need to make a purposeful effort to be careful not to attack their husbands, to complain about what they did, but not criticise them as a person or express contempt. Complaints are not attacks on character, but rather a clear statement that a particular action is distressing. An angry personal attack will almost certainly lead to a husband's getting defensive or stonewalling, which will be all the more frustrating and only escalate the fight. 
It helps too if a wife's complaints are put in the larger context of reassuring her husband of her love for him. So, you know, you don't have to be married. Of course, you can be in a, otherwise in a long-term relationship. But I think, um, I've never read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I've heard mixed reviews. Some people say it's a little bit too frivolous, a bit too broad and general. Other people have said that it's got some fundamental points in it that need to be acknowledged. And at the end of this chapter, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. The art of non-defensive speaking for couples centres around keeping what is said to a specific complaint rather than escalating to a personal attack. Psychologist Chaim Ginot, the grandfather of effective communication programmes, recommended that the best formula for a complaint is XYZ. When you did X, it made me feel Y, and I'd rather you did Z instead. For example, when you didn't call to tell me you were going to be late for our dinner appointment, I felt unappreciated and angry. I wish you'd call to let me know you'll be late. Instead of, you're a thoughtless, self-centred bastard, which is how the issue is all too often put in couples' fights. In short, open communication has no bullying, threats or insults, nor does it allow for any of the innumerable forms of defensiveness, excuses, denying responsibility, counter-attacking with a criticism and the like. Here again, empathy is a potent tool. So I'm sure we've all been there, right? We go from arguing with our partner about something specific to these horrible personal attacks and if it's not checked they just get worse and worse and things that can be said that reach the point of no return as i was saying earlier finally respect and love disarm hostility in marriage as elsewhere in life one powerful way to de-escalate a fight is to let your partner know that you can see things from the other perspective and that this point of view may have validity even if you do not agree with it yourself Another is to take responsibility or even apologise if you see you're in the wrong. At a minimum, validation means at least conveying that you're listening and can acknowledge the emotions being expressed, even if you can't go along with the argument. And at other times when there is no fight going on, validation takes the form of compliments, finding something you genuinely appreciate and voicing some phrase. Validation, of course, is a way to help soothe your spouse or to build up emotional capital in the form of positive feelings. So, you know, the point's been made by many people that we don't generally compliment other people, be they friends, colleagues, lovers. With lovers, it tends to be at the beginning, you're extremely nice and then you get a sense of familiarity and you often find that that niceness starts to disappear. And in long-term couples, you'll hear that even if they seem reasonably happy, they're often sniping at each other and putting each other down. Yeah, It's often dressed up as a comedic thing and sometimes it can be a joke you know sometimes it's fun to tease each other of course but uh don't forget to compliment your spouse even for no reason whatsoever other than to build up emotional capital and make them feel better so now we move from lovers to managers chapter 10 managing with heart and they talk here about um the worst way to motivate someone the emotional vicissitudes at work in marriage also operate in the workplace where they take similar forms Criticisms are voiced as personal attacks rather than complaints that can be acted upon. There are ad hominem charges with dollops of disgust, sarcasm and contempt. Both give rise to defensiveness and dodging of responsibility and finally to stonewalling or the embittered passive resistance that comes from feeling unfairly treated. Ad hominem, by the way, um, is usually used in the context of debates where instead of criticising the other person's position, you start just making personal attacks. That culture is just everywhere in politics. 
Indeed, one of the more common forms of destructive criticism in the workplace, says one business consultant, is a blanket generalised statement like, you're screwing up, delivered in a harsh, sarcastic, angry tone, providing neither a chance to respond nor any suggestion of how to do things better. It leaves the person receiving it feeling helpless and angry. From the vantage point of emotional intelligence, such criticism displays an ignorance of the feelings it will trigger in those who receive it and the devastating effect those feelings will have on their motivation, energy and confidence in doing their work. This destructive dynamic showed up in a survey of managers who were asked to think back to times they blew up at employees and in the heat of the moment made a personal attack. The angry attacks had effects much like they would in a married couple. The employees who received them reacted most often by becoming defensive, making excuses or evading responsibility. Or they stonewalled, that is, tried to avoid all contact with the manager who blew up at them. If they'd been subjected to the same emotional microscope that John Gottman used with married couples, these embittered employees would no doubt have been shown to be thinking the thoughts of innocent victimhood or righteous indignation typical of husbands or wives who feel unfairly attacked. If their physiology were measured, they would probably also display the flooding that reinforces such thoughts. And yet the managers were only further annoyed and provoked by those responses, suggesting the beginning of a cycle that in the business world ends in the employee quitting or being fired, the business equivalent of a divorce. And they go on to cite more things, but you you can see the connection here between um, the couples and the manager and his subordinate, let's call it. Really, if you read this book and if you've been listening to this podcast, what is a frequent theme is that you have to stop the cycle, whether that's a cycle of the mistreatment of a child or of the disintegration of a relationship or many other things that are mentioned in this book, many other topics. So now we get to the positive side, the artful critique. Consider the alternative. An artful critique can be one of the most helpful messages a manager can send. For example, what the contemptuous vice president could have told the software engineer but did not was something like, the main difficulty at this stage is that your plan will take too long and so escalate costs. I'd like you to think more about your proposal, especially the design specifications for software development, to see if you can figure out a way to do the same job more quickly. Such a message has the opposite impact of destructive criticism. Instead of creating helplessness, anger and rebellion, it holds out the hope of doing better and suggests the beginning of a plan for doing so. An artful critique focuses on what a person has done and can do rather than reading a mark of character into a job poorly done. As the researcher observes, a character attack, calling someone stupid or incompetent, misses the point. You immediately put them on the defensive so that he's no longer receptive to what you have to tell him about how to do things. This advice, of course, is precisely the same as for married couples airing their grievances. And then Harry Levinson, a psychoanalyst turned corporate consultant, gives the following advice on the art of the critique, which is intricately entwined with the art of praise. Be specific. Pick a significant incident an event that illustrates a key problem that needs changing or a pattern of deficiency, such as the inability to do certain parts of a job well. It demoralises people just to hear that they are doing something wrong without knowing what the specifics are, so they can change. Focus on the specifics, saying what the person did well, what was done poorly and how it could be changed. Don't beat around the bush or be oblique or evasive. It will muddy the real message. Specificity is just as important for praise as for criticism. I won't say that vague praise has no effect at all, but it doesn't have much and you can't learn from it. So what I was saying earlier about complimenting your spouse or your partner, 
I think it's nice to say, uh, oh, I think you're a wonderful person and I really appreciate you. But then you could point out some of the little things they do that you like. I think it might have more effect. Second part is offer a solution. The critique, like all useful feedback, should point to a way to fix the problem. Otherwise, it leaves the recipient frustrated, demoralised or demotivated. The critique may open the door to possibilities and alternatives that the person did not realise were there, or simply sensitise them to deficiencies that need attention, but should include suggestions about how to take care of these problems. By the way, if I've got criticism of this book, it's too uh, gender-specific, so... (laughs) I actually changed the gender there to, I changed it to they or there because he keeps saying him or her when uh, it could apply to both sexes. Anyway, next one is be present. Critiques like praise are most effective face-to-face and in private. People who are uncomfortable giving a criticism or offering praise are likely to ease the burden on themselves by doing it at a distance, such as in a memo. But this makes the communication too impersonal and robs the person receiving it of an opportunity for a response or clarification. Finally, be sensitive. This is a call for empathy, for being attuned to the impact of what you say and how you say it on the person at the receiving end. Managers who have little empathy, Levinson points out, are most prone to giving feedback in a hurtful fashion, such as the withering put-down. The net effect of such criticism is destructive. Instead of opening the way for a corrective, it creates an emotional backlash of resentment, bitterness, defensiveness and distance. Levinson also offers some emotional counsel for those at the receiving end of criticism. One is to see the criticism as valuable information about how to do better, not as a personal attack. Another is to watch for the impulse toward defensiveness instead of taking responsibility. And if it gets too upsetting, ask to resume the meeting later after a period to absorb the difficult message and cool down a bit. Finally, he advises people to see criticism as an opportunity to work together with the critic to solve the problem, not as an adversarial situation. All this sage advice, of course, directly echoes suggestions for married couples trying to handle their complaints without doing permanent damage to their relationship. As with marriage, so with work. Now, I think this is going to be the final chapter in part two of this podcast. So chapter 11 is called Mind and Medicine. And the section is called The Body's Mind, How Emotions Matter for Health. In 1974, a finding in a laboratory at the School of Medicine and Dentistry, University of Rochester, rewrote biology's map of the body. Robert Ader, a psychologist, discovered that the immune system, like the brain, could learn. His result was a shock. The prevailing wisdom in medicine had been that only the brain and central nervous system could respond to experience by changing how they behaved. Ada's finding, or Ada's finding, led to the investigation of what are turning out to be myriad ways the central nervous system and the immune system communicate. Biological pathways that make the mind, the emotions and the body not separate, but intimately entwined. In an experiment... White rats have been given a medication that artificially suppressed the quantity of disease-fighting T-cells circulating in their blood. Each time they received the medication, they ate it along with saccharin-laced water. But Ada discovered that giving the rats the saccharin-flavoured water alone, without the suppressive medication, still resulted in the lowering of the T-cell count, to the point that some of the rats were getting sick and dying. Their immune system had learned to suppress T-cells in response to the flavoured water. That just should not have happened, according to the best scientific understanding at the time. The immune system is the body's brain, as neuroscientist Francisco Farella at Paris's École Polytechnique puts it, defining the body's own sense of self, of what belongs within it and what does not. 
Immune cells travel in the bloodstream throughout the entire body, contacting virtually every other cell. Those cells they recognize, they leave alone. Those they fail to recognize, they attack. The attack either defends us against viruses, bacteria and cancer, or if the immune cells misidentify some of the body's own cells, create an autoimmune disease such as allergy or lupus. Till the day Ada made his serendipitous discovery, every anatomist, every physician and every biologist believe that the brain, along with its extensions throughout the body via the central nervous system and the immune system were separate entities, neither able to influence the operation of the other. There was no pathway that could connect the brain centres, monitoring what the rat tasted with the areas of bone marrow that manufactured T-cells, or so it had been thought for a century. So yeah, groundbreaking stuff there. It forced a new look at the links between the immune system and the central nervous system. We've seen this a lot, you know, we've seen uh, more and more people are making connections between things that they took to be mutually exclusive. Next part is toxic emotions, the clinical data. Despite evidence to the contrary, many or most physicians are still sceptical that emotions matter clinically. One reason is that while many studies have found stress and negative emotions to weaken the effectiveness of various immune cells, it is not always clear that the range of these changes is great enough to make a medical difference. Even so, an increasing number acknowledge the place of emotions in medicine. For example, Dr. Cameron Nezat says, if someone scheduled for surgery tells me that she's panicked that day, again, why is he saying she? (laughs) Why does it have to be she? And does not want to go through with it, I cancel the surgery. Every surgeon knows that people are extremely scared, do terribly in surgery. They bleed too much, they have more infections and complications. They have a harder time recovering. It's much better if they are calm. The reason is straightforward. Panic and anxiety hike blood pressure, and veins distended by pressure bleed more profusely when cut by the surgeon's knife. Excess bleeding is one of the most troublesome surgical complications, one that can sometimes lead to death. Another section says when anger is suicidal. A while back, a bump on the side of a man's car led to a fruitless and frustrating journey. After endless insurance company red tape and auto body shops that did more damage, he still owed $800. And it wasn't even his fault. He was so fed up that whenever he got into the car, he was overcome with disgust. He finally sold the car in frustration. Years later, the memories still made the man livid with outrage. And they then cite a study of anger in heart patients at Stanford University Medical School. All the patients in the study had, like this embittered man, suffered a first heart attack, and the question was whether anger might have a significant effect of some kind on their heart function. The effect was striking. While the patients recounted incidents that made them mad, the pumping efficiency of their hearts dropped by 5 percentage points. Some of the patients showed a drop in pumping efficiency of 7% or greater, a range that cardiologists regard as a sign of a myocardial ischemia, I-S-C-H-E-M-I-A, ischemia, a dangerous drop in blood flow to the heart itself. Interestingly, the drop in pumping efficiency was not seen with other distressing feelings such as anxiety, nor during physical exertion. Anger seems to be the one emotion that does most harm to the heart. So yeah, anger is a... Something we all experience, and we experience in the people around us, and uh, things like road rage. If you've ever seen a full-on road rage incident, I mean, the level of anger there was quite shocking. This finding was part of a larger network of evidence emerging from dozens of studies pointing to the power of anger to damage the heart. 
The old idea is not held up that a hurried, high-pressure type A personality is at great risk from heart disease, but from that failed theory has emerged a new finding. It is hostility that puts people at risk. Of course, no one is saying that anger alone causes coronary artery disease. It is one of several interacting factors. As Peter Kaufman, acting chief of the behavioural medicine branch of the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, explained... We can't yet sort out whether anger and hostility play a causal role in the early development of coronary artery disease or whether it intensifies the problem once heart disease has begun, or both. But take a 20-year-old who repeatedly gets angry. Each episode of anger adds an additional stress to the heart by increasing his heart rate and blood pressure. When that is repeated over and over again, it can do damage, especially because the turbulence of blood flowing through the coronary artery with each heartbeat can cause micro-tears in the vessel, where plaque develops. If your heart rate is faster and blood pressure is higher because you're habitually angry, then over 30 years that may lead to a faster build-up of plaque and so lead to coronary artery disease. We're going to end this chapter with the positive side of things. The medical benefits of positive feelings. The cumulative evidence for adverse medical effects from anger, anxiety and depression is compelling. Both anger and anxiety, when chronic, can make people more susceptible to a range of disease, and while depression may not make people more vulnerable to becoming ill, it does seem to impede medical recovery and heighten the risk of death, especially with more frail patients with severe conditions. But if chronic emotional distress in its many forms is toxic, the opposite range of emotion can be tonic. I never realised that was the opposite of toxic. Anyway, to a degree. This by no means says that positive emotion is curative, or that laughter or happiness alone will turn the course of a serious disease, The edge positive emotions offer seems subtle, but by using studies with large numbers of people can be teased out of the mass of complex variables that affect the course of disease. So they talk about the price of pessimism, but we're going to focus instead on the avarches of optimism and also hope. Like its near cousin optimism, hope has healing power. People who have a great deal of hopefulness are understandably better able to bear up under trying circumstances, including medical difficulties. In a study of people paralysed from spinal injuries, those who had more hope were able to gain greater levels of physical mobility compared to other patients with similar degrees of injury, but who felt less hopeful. Hope is especially telling in paralysis from spinal injury, since this medical tragedy typically involves a man who is paralysed in his 20s by an accident and will remain so for the rest of his life. How he reacts emotionally will have broad consequences for the degree to which he will make the efforts that might bring him greater physical and social functioning. They do say in the book that just why an optimistic or pessimistic outlook should have health consequences is open to any of several explanations. And they go through these, but obviously the salient point is that they do affect them. We don't always have to know why. Next section little Beatles reference here close to my heart with a little help from my friends the medical value of relationships add the sounds of silence to the list of emotional risks to health and close emotional ties to the list of protective factors studies done over two decades involving more than 37,000 people show that social isolation the sense that you have nobody with whom you can share your private feelings or have close contact doubles the chances of sickness or death Isolation itself, a 1987 report in Science concluded, is as significant to mortality rates as smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity and lack of physical exercise. Indeed, smoking increases mortality risk by a factor of 1.6, while social isolation does so by a factor of 2.0, making it a greater health risk. And by the way, that's not 
a get out clause for those who smoke smoking 100 cigarettes a day in a room full of people (laughs) doesn't make that any better isolation is harder on men than on women isolated men were two to three times more likely to die as were men with close social ties for isolated women the risk was one and a half times greater than for more socially connected women of course solitude is not the same as isolation many people who live on their own or see few friends are content and healthy rather it is a subjective sense of being cut off from people having no one to turn to that is the medical risk This finding is ominous in light of the increasing isolation bred by solitary TV watching and the falling away of social habits such as clubs and visits in modern urban societies and suggests an added value to self-help groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous as surrogate communities. And I would really combine the idea of the hope with the idea of the social connections by saying that I could probably spend 30 days alone if I knew that on the 31st day I was going to see friends or was going to have some sort of social contact. But I think it's feeling that there's that yawning chasm of lack of social ties in the future. So I think that's a thing. And I, I fully agree with the fact that being on your own, spending lots of time on your own, as I do, as I certainly am at the moment, you know, getting through all these podcasts and teaching online and stuff, because I know I've got social contact there when I need it, it's not really affecting me. You know, obviously isolation and solitude has been uh, very much on the agenda in the last year with the lockdown, which is just easing now in England. As I said, you know, groups, it doesn't have to be a family, you know, it could be social groups. And in England, certainly there's a fantastic uh, website called meetup.com. And um, you can almost certainly find people with similar interests because at the end of the day, everyone wants to get together. That's the thing. We just need excuses to get together. So... Some very clever people are making money from uh, websites that encourage people to do what they already want to do. Anyway, some sections in the book about the power of isolation as a mortality risk factor and then the healing power of close ties. But I think the connections here between things like stress and anxiety and uh, lower life expectancy and uh, diseases of the body and the mind, in fact, I think the connections here are pretty clear. And the studies they're citing here, they're involving large numbers of people and often over quite a long period of time so i think this stuff's pretty sound the fact that a lot of hospitals are taking emotional intelligence seriously i don't know if they call it that but um, they talk about moments when patients face surgery or invasive and painful tests are fraught with anxiety and are a prime opportunity to deal with the emotional dimension. Some hospitals have developed pre-surgery instruction for patients that help them assuage their fears and handle their discomforts. For example, by teaching patients relaxation techniques, answering their questions well in advance of surgery, and telling them several days ahead of surgery precisely what they are likely to experience during their recovery. The result? Patients recover from surgery an average of two to three days sooner. Relaxation training can help patients deal with some of the distress their symptoms bring, as well as with the emotions that may be triggering or exacerbating their symptoms. An exemplary model is John Kabat-Zinn's Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, which offers a 10-week course in mindfulness and yoga to patients. The emphasis is on being mindful of emotional episodes as they are happening, and on cultivating a daily practice that offers deep relaxation. Hospitals have made instructional tapes from the course available over patients' television sets, a far better emotional diet for the bedridden than the usual fare, soap operas. Yes, uh, I was talking earlier about meditation, and I think mindfulness is 
I mean, it's a type of meditation, in fact. It's definitely a cousin, if nothing less. And uh, yoga is another one. You know, I was saying to a friend quite recently, you know, if, if everyone meditated and did yoga every single day of their life, which wouldn't take very long, you know, everyone claims they haven't got time, but yeah, they always find time for the things they want to do. You know, if everyone did meditation and yoga every day, we would live in an incredibly different world. I can guarantee you that. I'm going to leave it there for chapter 11 and indeed for part two of this podcast. Well done if you're sticking with this. <laughs> I know it's very long, but there's so much gold in this book. There really is. And I hope I've been able to add a few of my own insights. So um, that's the end of episode 12 of Life and Life Only. I'll be back very soon for episode 13. So take care, all the best, and see you soon.